welcome to the On Country podcast. I'm Mark Woling. I'm an ethnoecologist and research fellow in Indigenous Ranger programs at the University of Western Australia. The On Country podcast is where we bring you stories and interviews about the people involved in the Indigenous Ranger and Indigenous Protected Area programs, and where we discuss the ups and downs of managing Australia's vast cultural landscapes. I'd like to emphasise that this podcast is separate and independent of my own research at UWA, and all views expressed are my own or those of my guests. The On Country podcast is based on my desire and effort to document the incredible history of the Indigenous Ranger program and the work that continues to be done by both Indigenous Rangers and Western scientists to meet the ongoing challenges we face as a country. Before we get started, this podcast is coming to you from Noongar Wadjuk country and is proudly presented by FrioCast, an independent not-for-profit community radio and podcast station created and run by a group of dedicated volunteers based here in sunny South Fremantle, Western Australia. My guest this week is Dermot Smythe, a cultural ecologist who has spent more than 40 years working in partnership with Indigenous people to develop programs and policy for the co-management of national parks, Indigenous ranger groups, the Indigenous Protected Areas Program and country-based planning. So Dermot, welcome. Yeah, good day, Mark. Just in the interests of our listeners, um, uh, you were just saying that these days it's uh, you don't know how to define yourself. So, how, where did you uh, get started? You started off doing a degree in um, Western Science and Zoology. You were saying I, I did my 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 first uh, training in zoology at um, Australian National University back in the late sixties, finishing in nineteen seventy. And uh, in those days, I think we we were taught that the Australian landscape was a sort of blank canvas that young zoologists and botanists could go out and explore and, and uh, you know, help to understand. We certainly learned nothing about the long, long history of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander management and knowledge of the environment. So all that came later and it came as a bit of a shock that I was so under, under-educated, ill-prepared for what was really out there. Yeah, and and so um, how did you? I guess guess go on, on that journey. How did you come to um, sort of do some more formal sort of work in anthropology and, and move well, more towards that cultural landscape yeah, space? I think we have to go back a little bit. When I finished my studies in zoology, I was fortunate enough to um, uh, do some work overseas in Indonesia, in Papua New Guinea, and in West Africa doing fairly straightforward um, wildlife ecology and zoology research in a, in a minor way. I was, you know, in my early 20s and it was a big adventure. But one of those, one of the things that was very clear in all of those places that if you wanted to do research or understand how the environment works or work with a particular animal, you always worked with the local people. They owned the land, they knew about the environment and they were an absolutely invaluable partner in research. They were typically very interested in the work, they contributed to the work um, and they enriched the experience. When I came back to Australia to continue working as uh, as a zoologist, um, I, I sort of started to look around and think, well, where are the people here? And it was like a great absence from the work that I'd been doing elsewhere. And when I started a project on um, studying a, an animal called the Australian swiftlet, a little little bird that lives in caves in North Queensland, I started to um, try and make contact with uh, Aboriginal people that m- might know about this animal and came from that area. And that brought me into contact with the the history and the politics of Aboriginal affairs in Queensland. This was back in the 1970s when Aboriginal people 
were by no means free. They were often living on reserves. Uh, they didn't have um, autonomy. They didn't have any ownership of land and so on. It was also a time when um, uh, the first national parks were being established in Cape York Peninsula. And one way of establishing a national park in those days was to move any people out of it. Or in some cases, national parks were used, or the declaration of parks were used to prevent Aboriginal people from buying land, pastoral stations and other land. So that was an, another sort of rude awakening for me. Um, and that's how I really started to get involved in, in supporting traditional owners to um, you know, reassert their involvement in managing uh, national parks and in other environments. And to do that work, I at, at one point did some anthropological studies to get a better understanding of the culture that I was, you know, so inexperienced with. Yeah, it's interesting. And so when um, when you uh, were overseas, uh, because uh, my my understanding uh, is that the, I think the first um, use of the term ethnoecology and certainly ethnobotany it goes right back to the 1940s in um, South America and um, it was uh, anthropologists were starting to see that incredible link between people's connection to country and Australia uh, I had a similar experience in the in the 90s where Australia just seemed completely um, 20 30 years if not more behind of that that sort of understanding and and the, the deep knowledge that indigenous people had um so um do you, would are, are you saying that was your experience when you went overseas you were seeing that sort of disconnect when you came back to australia yes i mean overseas i wasn't working with anthropologists i was working with other um zoologists and botanists and in those places they the scientific community already had a well-established pattern of working with local people um, and uh, benefiting from their knowledge and, and a sort of two-way collaboration. Um, back in Australia in the 1970s, there were uh, anthropologists working in that field, um, you know, really doing amazing work uh, coming to grips with, with uh, local cultures in many parts of Australia, but there didn't seem to be a link between the discipline of anthropology and the discipline of uh, ecology or environmental management that was yet to come um, and i was fortunate enough to get a job with the institute of aboriginal studies as a field biologist or field ecologist i think they call it to work on a multidisciplinary project with anthropologists and traditional owners across cape york peninsula doing what they call a a transect project from Western Cape York to Eastern Cape York to try and understand better the links between people, culture, environment, and, and knowledge of the environment, knowledge of animals and plants. And that was a transformational experience for me to work firsthand with anthropologists and traditional owners, you know, camping on country for, for weeks and sometimes months, um, and the sort of the rest of, of, of my career is history from that, that point onwards. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I think it's it's those early projects that led to really, I, I think, what was probably you establishing, um, as, as far as I know, the first uh, sort of formal Indigenous ranger program on Palm Island in 1983. But I guess we have to pay tribute to, to as you were mentioning uh, off air, uh, to, to Dennis Rose, who was, I think, the first Indigenous ranger as far as we know. Um, can you speak more to that? Yeah, that's my understanding, and I've had the privilege of knowing Dennis for many, many years, and I hope you'll get to interview him. Yeah, he's on the, on the list. <laughs> he was uh, he was a ranger with Victoria Parks in Queens in in, in Victoria, uh, and the first such ranger of any park service in Australia, and he he went on to have play a major role in the, the whole story the caring for country story of australia setting up ranger groups setting up indigenous protected areas and so on and back in those days the uh, 70s and and early 80s the understanding was that if you wanted to be a ranger and look after country have look after national parks you 
you would have to work for a government agencies because governments had a monopoly on that sort of professional environmental management, the yeah. dedication of national parks, the marine parks, and the management of those areas. And so um, a lot of the early work that I did and Dennis and other people have done um, was to enhance the involvement of traditional owners in those government processes. It was then sometime later that it became clear that that, that was a very often an unsatisfactory process because typically those collaborative arrangements are led by governments under legislation and an alternative approach is for traditional owners and their organizations to establish their own range of programs and later on to establish their own protected areas so that's been the, the trajectory what's your because I, 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 I think that there's a, there is a sort of a divergent view about uh, what a sort of a park ranger is in, in the, the western sense who works within a, an, a, a national reserve estate versus an indigenous ranger whose who's, um, motivations and purpose is, is, is different from, from that of a, a traditional whitefella park ranger. Um, and, and this has been, I think, still today one of the struggles that uh, we have uh, in e educating National Parks um, services, although they, they are listening and changing. Um, could you speak to that a little bit more and how in those early days um, you, you sort of struggled to get that view with your Indigenous colleagues through? Because um, I'd, I'd love to pick up that, that statement you made when we reconnected on the phone the other day, and which I think is true, as you said, uh, uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a revolution. People don't understand what a revolution this was to, um, for Indigenous people to be starting their own range of independent ranger programs because politically, um, and it was the same in the Northern Territory when I was up there in the early 90s and through that decade, national parks were used as a political tool to um, try to push Aboriginal people off, off their land and to, to gain control of it, particularly with the, um, the uh, operation of the Aboriginal Land Rights Act, Act 1976 in the NT. So, yeah, um, I'd love to hear your views on all that. And yeah, I think for government agencies, the idea of Indigenous people becoming rangers within their own, within government agencies, that idea itself was revolutionary. Mm. And for, for all, when these changes happen, the sort of prevailing um, power, I suppose, of government tends to think, um, well, we get this, you can join our organisation, you can train and become a ranger like everybody else, and that's already a generous act on behalf of the government, and uh, the, providing you are willing to do all the things that every, all the other staff do, for example, be prepared to be transferred anywhere in the state or territory, work in any national park, um, then you know, this collaboration will work well. Uh, but of course, once Aboriginal people started working in those agencies, they brought so much with them. They brought the responsibility to look after country. They brought a lot of knowledge that they wanted to apply. Uh, they brought a sense of reasserting cultural authority over country. And all of those things um, were difficult for government agencies to accommodate. First, for a start, many of the government agencies didn't understand what this, you know, what was happening, and secondly, they didn't want to um, cede, cede control of a country or the hierarchies of agencies and so on. So I think, um, uh, in you know, bit by bit, uh, different groups, beginning in Queensland, Aboriginal people decided to start their own organisations. Uh, it's interesting that the first one, which, as you mentioned, was on Palm Island in 1983, was developed um, in an area where there wasn't a national park. So it was it was on the reserve of Palm Island uh, and other similar independent ranger groups started in Queensland and then spread elsewhere. And it really wasn't, uh, it was quite some time before national park agencies started to see 
that there might be some benefit in working with these and even supporting the the growth of independent ranger groups rather than um, saying you you know if you want to be a ranger you have to join our organization and of course there's no one sort of pathway there are today there are many many successful indigenous people working as rangers within a government national park agencies and marine park agencies and so on um and you know that that works well if if there's a respectful relationship but on top of that as well as that there are these independent ranger groups who are de delivering you know managing of country uh outside national parks but also increasingly inside national parks as well yeah Paint a picture for, picture for me of that uh, first program in Palm Island. So, how did you how did you end up on Palm Island, and uh, what did that look like? Did you was it a scrabbling for um, like as as it was the scrabbling for materials? Like even today, you know, a lot of programs run on a shoestring. So I can imagine back in '83, it would have been pretty tough and and also um were you looking at sea country then or was it primarily sort of terrestrially based right well we we have to go back one more year back to 1982 which was the year of the commonwealth games in queensland in brisbane the elke peterson was in power the international media was going to arrive and report on the state of play and politics in queensland the National Party government in Queensland was determined not to um, provide a land rights regime in Queensland for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but they were aware that there would be scrutiny of the state of Aboriginal affairs in Queensland. So they looked around their own uh, legislation in Queensland to find a way of devolving some power to aboriginal people on the former missions and were currently reserves aboriginal reserves and they found a mechanism in the i think it's in the land act called deed of grant in trust whereby local people could be given a deed of grant over a certain area of land to manage uh, on behalf of the government that was a a, a sort of a legal mechanism that was used to set up cemeteries and rubbish dumps in other uh, earlier times but it was used in this instance to set up a management regime for the fallen reserves and palm island was one of those reserves um so so, so, so can, can can i interrupt there was so was that um was that the government driving that or was that an uh, aboriginal organization um dry, dry, uh, identifying that act and and that clause and, and using yeah, that, that? that was a, gov a government process i mean yeah. there were there were moves moves and demands from aboriginal people for many many years of course to get land back and to get freedom back to get control over their lives but this was a mechanism that the government felt that they could accommodate without passing separate new um land rights legislation so from the government point of view it yeah, was an act seat, of generosity control, from Aboriginal yeah. point of view it was a small small step but the the one of the, the the sort of benefits of that process was that the the newly um established deed of grant and trust areas came together in 1982 for a meeting amongst themselves to work out what this new era of quasi self-government was going to look like and one of the first things that came up at the at that meeting which was held in cairns was the issue of managing country and right there at the beginning of that conversation about self-management of these data ground former reserves was the idea of we want our own rangers we want to look after country um, so it came from that collective sort of uh, beginning of the era of freedom um, and it just happened that palm island was the the, the, the one that made the application to atsic to get funding and they became quite well established quite quickly they had a um, a ranger patrol vessel so they were involved in sea country work they had a ranger base on the island they had six or seven rangers 
the funding for that was largely around training. Uh, and that, the whole first stage of the Ranger um, era in Queensland was centred around funding from TAFE to run Ranger training courses. The employment side came from the, the, the first iteration of the work for the Dole scheme. So the Rangers were very poorly paid, paid part-time as a sort of um, quasi-Dole situation. Uh, whereas the the dedicated funding came through the education system through TAFE, and I got I got asked by the TAFE College in Cairns to run that first Ranger training course on Palm Island at the request of Palm Island community. And and how how long was that uh, was that program running for? Did is I'm, I'm sure it's probably still going in some form today, but. Did that, um, as it grew, did, did it have struggles uh, to attract further funding and sort of fall apart? Or Look, I think it, I, I just can't, I don't know the details of the funding, but it did run for quite a number of years. And I think the training part of it was quite well funded. What was missing, and it was missing for many years, was a follow-up process of government investment for the employment and the, the funding for actually implementing managing of country. Because government agencies at that stage were still hanging on to the idea that they had a monopoly on managing the environment. Yeah, and that, and that kind of um, brings us to this period where, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think it was, it was you and Steve Zabo uh, were part of a, I think you wrote a report um, not long after that, uh, about the national reserve system and this this idea of um, of the the indigenous protected area program came started to emerge and and sort of building that into the national reserve system. Um, and so, for our listeners, the national reserve system is the conservation estate um, that's of all of all of Australia's national parks and conservation reserves that, as we are saying, uh, were at that time managed by Commonwealth and state and territory governments. There was absolutely uh, pretty much zero Aboriginal involvement or control of anything there. Um, and so uh, how did you, because I know Steve was, uh, and we'll talk about Steve Zabo, the, the late Steve Zabo shortly, but um, how did you go about kind of starting to shift shift that uh, very large sort of Titanic-like ship of uh, yeah. government to um, change their their view. Look, if I may, I would I'll just go back one step of to course. what we were talking about previously about these early ranger groups in Queensland, including Palm Island. They were all established um, by the local community, elected community councils. They were the ones that were in charge of the work for the Dole scheme, so they had the funding. Um, eventually, one by one, all of those ranger groups ceased to exist precisely because they were involved in managing country over which the elected councils did not have cultural authority. And so that first era of indigenous rangers was not run and governed by traditional owner groups it was run by elected councils and so that was a an interesting first attempt which eventually fell over one by one because the essential ingredient of governance by the relevant traditional owner group was not there mm. that has since been rectified now and, and all of those groups all those ranger groups in queensland that fell over one by one have been re-established but under the direction of local traditional owner groups. So that's just a bit of a digression. But um, interesting, the, the yeah. work on Indigenous protected areas came as a result of a few different things that, that came together. Can I, could I, sorry, just interrupt you. Let's, let's um, just spend some time and, and define an Indigenous protected area for those who, who aren't familiar with them. Yeah. So an Indigenous protected area is a, an area that's managed for its cultural values and natural values in the same way as a national park is. But instead of being 
dedicated or declared by a government agency. It's dedicated by a traditional owner group yeah. who make a public uh, commitment to look after this country in perpetuity. Yeah. So it's it's an area um, that's recognised by all Australian governments as a legitimate and equivalent form of protected area as a national park or marine park, and it's recognised internationally by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. A very big difference is that it's not established under legislation, but it achieves the same outcomes. And in my view, one of the strengths of it is precisely that it is established under that cultural authority rather than under a government legislation. Um, but that was a revolution because up until they were established, the first one of those was established in 1998. Mm. Nantawarana, yeah. Nantawarana, and they've, they've got their 20th, 5th anniversary this week, uh, holding a big ceremony there. Um, so until that day, governments had a monopoly, and when that first one was established as a bit of an experiment in 1998, it, it was the beginning of this revolution of uh, breaking that monopoly. But it happened because Paul Keating as Prime Minister in 1991 made a public commitment that all the um, different areas of biodiversity in Australia would be protected. An example of every different type of biodiversity would be protected in some sort of protected area. Um, and round about the same time, the, this International Union of Conservation of Nature, to which Australia is a member, they came up with a new definition of a protected area, which included management by legal means, like a national park, or other effective means, like an Indigenous protected area. So you, you had this government commitment across the whole country to protect representative areas, and you now had a policy mechanism to do that without legislation because um, the federal government recognised, particularly in, in Northern Territory and, and uh, South Australia and so on, where traditional owners had, had fought for many years to get land returned to them, the government was aware that they would not be or unlikely be willing to hand it back to gov governments to be made into a national park. So the federal government in Canberra was keen to explore a mechanism for having those areas protected but remaining in the hands of traditional owners. And so that's where the the idea of Indigenous protected areas came on, uh, came up. Steve Zabo, as you mentioned, was a, a very early supporter of that idea within government. And I'd known him from some years doing training programs with him and working in the field here and there, and he invited me to undertake a consultancy project to explore whether this idea might might work from a legal point of view, from a policy point of view, and also whether traditional owners around Australia would be interested to explore that idea. Yeah, and um, I, I know um, Steve was sort of working uh, very, very hard behind the scenes and sort of working with the sort of uh, mechanisms of of government um and uh, eventually the there was a, a an indigenous protected area unit established within, within i can't remember what the name of the commonwealth department was called back then it was now is environment australia or something but um can you talk to me a little bit more about that sort of uh, process and the ups and downs of that yeah well in those days there was a separate um executive agency called the uh, Australian Parks and Wildlife Service. Oh, that's right, yeah. Um, which was not a government department, and that gave it a bit more autonomy. We were also fortunate that the director of that agency at the time had been involved in drafting this new international definition of a protected area. Um, and when Steve and I went to see him one day with this proposal, that Aboriginal people should be supported and funded to dedicate their own country as a protected area and the government should recognise that dedication and fund its management. His first reaction was, you know, why are you coming into my office 
to say things like that. We all know that governments are the ones that make protected areas. This is nonsense. We were able to say to him, well, you've just come back from Switzerland or somewhere to negotiate from negotiating this new definition of protected area. This is your opportunity to support this cutting edge new policy environment and Australia can lead the way in implementing this new inter international definition of a protected area without legislation. And to give him credit, he was silent for a couple of minutes, long, long minutes. And he said, well, this seems like a good idea and I will support it 100%. So they supported it to the extent of running a workshop to bring people together to explore the idea. And that was a very critical workshop held in Alice Springs over two or three days uh, with representatives of um, traditional owner groups and land councils from all over Australia. And so then um, the, what, what was of interest to me as well is um, like at the presently we're in a period where uh, Indigenous people, um, particularly in Australia and foreignly, uh, are being recognised for holding um, a incredible knowledge of their natural landscapes. But that was a, another matter back in those days where Indigenous ecological knowledge um, was sort of, uh, was either just never discussed or talked about or even documented. I know some anthropologists were, were involved in that and even going back to the early days of Donald Thompson and so forth. But, um, you know, my experience in the 90s was it was I used to be laughed at at some time for wanting to or trying to document that knowledge. So where where were things at um, back in that that early meeting in those first those first kind of um, sort of set up periods? Yeah. Look, I think the focus at, at, the, at those meetings was about um, control and governance rather than about knowledge. People were well aware that they had so much knowledge to give in the management of country. But up until that point, the government agencies had typically, if they acknowledged that at all, they would say, well, share that knowledge and we will, we will make use of it. Those workshops about setting up Indigenous protected areas were not so much about knowledge as about providing a mechanism for the people with cultural authority of a country themselves to apply that knowledge and themselves to manage country often in partnership with government agencies but the idea was that traditional owners would invite government agencies to help them manage country if they needed that help rather than government agencies invite traditional owners to get involved in the government agencies so yeah that's in the process the relationship yeah, and that's sort of um, quite fascinating, given that the uh, Prime Minister yesterday announced the the, um, the date for the referendum for the voice, and you can see a, a kind of direct connection almost back to what we're talking about here and the lack of uh, ability of Aboriginal people to have adequate representation and an, an adequate governance structure at that national level that then feeds down into... Um, the, these local-based programs, um, and that's uh, yeah, it's it's quite a powerful example, I think, of how that can work um, to achieve stuff on the ground. Uh, given that uh, at the moment, um, I've got I have to look at my numbers here, but um, there's something like 130 Indigenous Ranger programs currently in Australia. There's um, 81 Indigenous protected areas since that first one in Nantawarrina in um, 1998 and there's um, over 2,000 uh, full-time, part-time and casual jobs have been created for Indigenous rangers in, in land and sea country. So um, yeah, I think it's, uh, it, was, it was, as you're saying, it was probably important to get the, the governance structures and the, those, those decision-making mechanisms for the right cultural authorities uh, bedded down first before the 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 issue of uh, knowledge, um, documentation, and management and transfer was uh, was established. Yeah, that's quite right. And I think it was fortuitous that at that time there were some very uh, visionary leaders within land councils and within traditional owner groups who were prepared. 
to give this idea a go and to fashion it so that it achieved what they wanted to achieve. There was also a time when there were some courageous people within the federal government, including our friend Steve Zabo and, and people above him as well. Um, probably right up, you know, right through the government ranks, there were people with the courage to say we need to do things differently and let's let's listen to see what traditional owners on the ground want and let's see if we can back them. So it's an example where if you do listen and you treat people respectfully, really mutually beneficial outcomes can happen. The, the weakness of that system is that it was very vulnerable. It was lucky that there were some good key people here and there at the right time, whereas the voice referendum is about trying to set similar things up, but in the longer term, that's not so vulnerable to you know, the whims of, of a particular government of the day. I mean, one good example of the listening capacity of, um, well, the leadership from the Indigenous side and the listening of the government was, as the, as the idea of Indigenous protected areas developed over a couple of days, um, more and more of the traditional owners and their representatives at, those work, at that workshop were saying, well, this idea seems like it's worth having a go. So it seems a little bit too good to be true that government is saying we will support you to look after your own country and respect the fact that you have the cultural authority to dedicate and declare your country as a protected area, but we will, we will give it a go. On the other hand, they said there is an injustice at the heart of this because you are saying to us you will only support us to look after country if we are lucky enough to have ownership of that country again through land rights, like in the Northern Territory or the north of South Australia. So they said, if you want us to accept this idea, this innovation of Indigenous protected areas on Aboriginal land, we want you to commit to supporting traditional owners elsewhere in Australia to re-engage in the management of country, for example, national parks, that has been taken off them in the past. Even if they don't have land rights legislation, we want you to support their re-engagement in looking after that country. And so this idea of reciprocity emerged as a key outcome of that workshop. Those people who have land will, ex will pilot, try out the idea of Indigenous protected areas, but you as a government must commit to supporting traditional owners who, do, who no longer have ownership of their land. And um, after a hurried consultation by senior members of the Federal Environment Department, they made that commitment, and that allowed the, the, the first pilot of Indigenous protected areas to proceed. Yeah, as, as you're speaking about that, I'm just thinking um, what you're, about what you were saying, that... that uh, you had some courageous and visionary people within government that uh, weren't afraid to some, try some new things and and to to uh, demonstrate a bit of uh, equity and dignity dignity towards Indigenous people and say, look, we, we believe in you and we we trust you and um, let, let's uh, let's try this together and. Again, I think there's that, that incredible uh, resonance it has with what we're talking about today, with the with the voice, and and yeah. there's this there seems to be this terrible um, division and fear that is that has crept in, which is really unfortunate. Yeah. It is. Um, but look, um, let, let's let's uh, talk about how. So how did that? Can because you just sort of uh, hinted at it then, like at, at that. Uh, initial workshop there was there was a view held by some sort of um, some great leadership from uh, the cultural authorities about well what about the rest of um, Australia and the, the indigenous people and rest of Australia which is sort of hinting at the, the the move towards joint management of national parks could you um, talk to talk to me a bit more about that yes well it certainly was aimed at um, supporting the idea of joint management of national parks in in states such as Queensland and Victoria and 
places like Tasmania, New South Wales, where at that time there was no formal joint management of national parks and there was no handover of ownership of national parks. So the idea was to try and use the Indigenous protected area revolution as a catalyst for uh, stimulating discussions, negotiations about joint management of government national parks elsewhere in Australia. And that certainly uh, had that effect because the Commonwealth uh, kept its commitment, provided they provided funding to Aboriginal groups and to state government agencies for them jointly to start to explore the idea of joint management of national parks. And you'll see the result now that all states and territories have some form of joint management of national parks in Australia. Uh, in, in Queensland, for example, all the parks, national parks in Cape York Peninsula are, are owned by traditional owners and jointly managed. Uh, and that's a, a radical change from um, you know, early days when, when I started to get involved in the 1970s and 80s. However, um, I'd say the, the, those workshops under, you know, inspirational leadership from traditional owners at that time, they, they, they negotiated, negotiated this idea of reciprocity and using it as a catalyst. But they also made a definition, their own definition of an indigenous protective area that provided the opportunity for indigenous protected area, that, that terminology to be used on existing national parks, even if the traditional owners didn't own that national park. And that was like a sleeper idea that, set, that sort of sat there in the definition for a decade or 15 years. And it wasn't until 2011 that the first indigenous protected area was dedicated over multiple land areas that included a national park, a forest reserve, a marine park, environmental reserve. And that was the first real, the next stage of the revolution where indigenous protected areas could became to be established, not just on Aboriginal land, but on land that had already been taken away and 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 uh, was being managed as a government protected area. Yeah, and and so uh, that that's really interesting because there there is kind of a a, a, a view out there that an an, indi an indigenous protected area, an IPA, can't be um, laid over an existing national park, which is a, a fallacy, isn't it? It is, um, and I mean it happened back in twenty eleven precisely because there wasn't a policy that said it couldn't be done. So there wasn't, a, there wasn't a government decision to allow it to happen. It was more that the traditional owners of that particular area near Cairns had, had a, um, a native title determination which gave them shared native title over those existing government protected areas, uh, coexisting native title. And they, they came to me and said, well, what can we do about this? What, how, what use is this? Um, the native title determination just allows us to visit and to camp and nothing much else. So I said, well, let's, let's explore the idea of, of declaring an Indigenous protected area over these multiple tenures and multiple government protected areas and see if we can put country back together using an indigenous protected area as the mechanism. Um, and that's eventually a couple of four or five years uh, to convince the government agencies that this was a beneficial process to them. It wasn't a threat to their existing ownership or their management regimes. It was in fact a mechanism for integrating the uh, cultural and natural values um, across different tenures. It, we've, we've had some uh, recent examples of um, IPAs where, um, I'm sorry the name escapes me of where it's happened, but where there's been, because of the lack of uh, legislative power of IPAs, some, um, and, and particularly here in Western Australia where we have uh, a lot of mining, um, where 
land has been um, uh, sort of retaken for for development um, and there's this in interesting t tension has arise. I know there's one example where um, th there's a fairly major um, renewables project has been sort of put over the top of um, through a development application through a, through a, an IPA so that IPA has yeah. largely kind of disappeared in a way I guess it still exists wow. on paper yeah but where and this is something I, I'll be um, uh, investigating and discussing in future episodes is that tension between um, the environmental impact assessment and and management of country versus uh, the the need to, to for energy transition and that tension with with what that means for approvals and and the use of use of country for energy generation which we need if it's clean energy um, versus uh, keeping uh, cultural landscapes in, intact it's a, it's a real problem um, so uh, I mean have you seen any examples of things like that happening uh, in uh, on the east coast or in Queensland well the closest example I can probably think of is around Groot Island in the Gulf of Carpentaria in the mm. Northern Territory where the island that the archipelago of Groot Island and the other islands there were established as a an indigenous protected area and managed for some years as an IPA and the traditional owners wanted to extend the IPA into the sea you know, to include about 70,000 hectares of sea country. Mm. At the same time, the manganese mine on the main island, which had been going for several decades, mm. they were exploring the idea of extending their mining into the seabed. And the traditional owners were very concerned of the impacts of the exploration, the um, sonic exploration would have on dugong and turtle but even more concerned if the mining was to go ahead by mining the seabed. They were concerned also about the interruption of song lines that connected the islands to um, the mainland. Um, now, that was an example where the IPA had no legislative um, you know, basis to, to stop that happening. However, what it did have was a sort of an extra level of authority by um, saying this this land and sea country is so important that it needs to be protected as an IPA and because of all its cultural and natural values the traditional owners went on a delegation to Canberra met the environment minister at the time Tony Burke who's now the industrial affairs minister and to his credit, he was impressed by the potential impact on dugong and turtle habitat, but he was even more impressed on the impact on cultural values, song lines and other values. And he committed to negotiate with the territory government to put a 10-year moratorium on seabed exploration and mining, which I understand has, has been extended. So it's an example to me where um, for, to get a legislative basis for indigenous protected areas may in some instances be a good thing, but like all good things, you have to be careful what you wish for because when something is legislated, it immediately is removed, in my opinion, it's removed from... Uh, the cultural authority of traditional owners moved to the authority of a parliament or a government. And in that example of around Groot Island, it was the cultural authority expressed by traditional owners that, that was responsible for the minister taking action. Uh, it wasn't a, a legislative threat. It was an explanation of culture, supported by the, the sort of branding of country as an indigenous protected area. I the example of you talking about in West Australia, I'm not familiar with that, so I don't know whether a legally based IPA would be you know, a better thing there. I do know that 
at some point during the evolution of the IPA program, sort of eight or ten years ago, there was a study done to explore legal options for IPA managers to protect their country. And one of the options that's available in all states and territory is to have a covenant placed on the tenure of the land to protect the environmental values or the heritage values. Um, it's not a particularly robust form of protection, but it is a form of legal protection which can be registered on the tenure and it can in some states it can only be overturned by you know parliament or or by a minister now at that time or since in the years subsequent to that i'm not familiar with any ipa that has adopted that mechanism which tells me that for most cases the the cultural authority of ipas is sufficient for managing most of the threats to them um, you know at the moment yeah, I, w I wonder if it's also that people, um, traditional owners or, and the, the cultural authorities within those groups do, are just not aware of that, of that mechanism too. Yeah. Could be. Uh, and yeah. that points to a, one, one problem the IPA program has had over the last decade, um, and that is up until that time there were annual meetings of IPA managers who would come together for two or three days to share experiences, to you know, engage in training, to organise exchanges between IPAs. They were incredibly powerful and inspirational gatherings. The former government that, you know, I think came in in 2013 or so, they decided to stop those annual meetings, and there's been a fragmentation of support uh, and information exchange for IPAs since that time, which I'm hoping the current government will will remedy. Yeah, uh, I mean, in um, early uh, two, I think it was early 2001 or so, we I was working with uh, conjunction with the Northern Land Council, and we sourced some funding from overseas to help sort of kickstart the. Uh, for NAOSMA, the North Australian Indigenous yeah. Land and Sea Management Alliance. And that's original kind of vision for that was to act as a as a sort of peak body for all the, yeah. the ranger groups to in Northern Australia to to, to speak to government and to uh, and that could because this was the one of the major um, comments coming from groups is that we 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 don't have any forum or mechanism to talk to each other. So the the NLC and KLC were trying to bring groups together, and were funding funding these uh, annual get-togethers, and um, and Nailsma did it has since then diverged a little from that uh, original vision, but it's it's done a good job to help advocate on behalf of all groups. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and again, I think that's it's. Um, it wasn't my intention for this uh, for this discussion, but it's interesting that resonance. Is once again there for um, uh, for the voice and what what we're looking at today, and th there's there are some clear examples of how these sorts of um, mechanisms of connecting the the local groups through to uh, having a, a national representation can Thank can work and yeah. be very be very effective. Look, I'm, I'm just mindful of time at the moment, and um, I, I think there's going to have to be a part two to this because uh, there's so okay. much more to talk about. And I'll um, track down um, Bruce Rose and, and also Dennis Rose. Um, Bruce Rose was a colleague of, of, of ours who um, went on to, to manage the Indigenous Protected Area programs in, in Canberra for some years and did a yeah. terrific job. So it'd be great to sort of fill in that, that next stage of history and but um, really, to finish off, what's what's your kind of um, and given and reflecting back on this experience you've had, where do you see uh, the IPAs and the Indigenous Ranger programs going in the future? Well, for IPAs, I think this movement from being based on tenure to being based on country will gather momentum. So that's that's what really happened with this idea of multiple tenure IPAs. It it happened with the idea of the re-emergence of country as a scale for managing the environment. Um, 
not just on these accidental tenure boundaries of so-called Aboriginal owned land, but the idea of country being the ancient and ongoing and still relevant scale for managing the environment. I see that's going to happen. I would also see that um, the Indigenous ranger groups will go from strength to strength and get involved in managing a bigger range of uh, environments and tenures, you know, government and non-government tenures. There's already quite a lot of involvement in Indigenous ranger groups going beyond their own you know, traditional owner areas uh, to to work on national parks. The Sea Country IPAs are only really just beginning, and that's another example of, I guess, multiple tenure IPAs, land and sea being managed as one country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I see a very bright future, and you know, it's one of the it's one of the um, the areas of ind- indigenous policy and environmental policy that you know all sides of government seem very supportive of and i think the, the funding will be there in the long term because it's de- delivering such a valuable service yeah absolutely it's i, I think it and this part of the drive of this podcast is to document this sort of fantastic history and the work that people have done you know both black and white uh, in partnership together um to to build such a incredible set of programs and um yeah, so that's probably a positive note to finish on. So, so, so Dermot, thanks so much for joining me. It's uh, great to talk to you again. And look, we'll we'll get you back on and and um, and do a part two because we've only really scratched the surface of this uh, this discussion. You've been listening to the On Country Podcast with me, Mark Wiley. Don't forget to like, subscribe and leave a review or just simply tell your friends and colleagues about us. Also don't forget to download the Freocast app where you can listen to more great music and stories from our incredible community. Music this week has been King Stingray who will take us out with their 2021 track, Get Me Out.
Esperar a tarde de 